0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, We don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: So Tracy, um, obviously 2019 for sort of mainstream risky assets like stocks in uh, developed markets has been a, it's been a pretty good one.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think we're ending uh, solidly up on the year, it looks like.
0: Yeah. One of the weird things, though, I would say is that despite the, you know, on the surface, everything looks good or growth, I guess, is okay, stocks are up a lot. There are a lot of things around the world this year that maybe in another year would be seen as more systemic or troubling. All kinds of uh, hotspots and flare-ups and protests basically everywhere you look.
2: Yeah. So as someone who's uh, in Hong Kong and has been for the past six months, one of the really remarkable things about this year is just how fast. We've seen social unrest basically spread around the world. I think Hong Kong was the first place where it really cropped up this year. But then we saw lots of protests in South American countries. We saw them uh, in the Middle East yet again. And a lot of these are still uh, taking place, of course. And it it takes a while to sort of uh, get through the impasse with protesters.
0: Yes. And there There's all these protests, you know, they have multiple causes, but each is in some level inextricably tied to something in the economy. Maybe the economy or some economic decision is a spark. Of course, everything is very complex, but all kinds of things related to public subsidies and pension systems and cutting of uh, government support for various uh, domestic programs, they seem to frequently... Uh, play a part in the unrest. And of course, that feeds into the perception of economic and financial stability everywhere that you see these things flare up.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. There's always an underlying economic trend in a lot of the uh, dissatisfaction that we're seeing around the world.
0: No, absolutely. So today on the uh, podcast, we're going to be speaking to an investor who's been looking at world markets, emerging markets for a long time, knows a lot about how these types of things play out or how they don't play out, maybe learn something about Uh, the connection between unrest, fiscal problems, financial stress, uh, bond markets, and how investors can uh, think about these situations.
2: Yes, I like this one. And before we start, we should just throw out there that one of the really interesting things about all this social unrest and how it affects uh, the fiscal situation of countries is that when it comes to debt sustainability, we don't really have an overarching bankruptcy regime for the world, right? right? Every country is sort of different. So you never quite can be sure how these things are going to play out. And each country might experience a very, very different outcome.
0: Exactly right. So with that uh, with that intro, I want to bring back Paul McNamara. He's a portfolio manager at GAM Investments. He's been on the show before One of our favorite people to talk to here. So, uh, Paul, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Uh, Thanks very much for having me.
0: So uh, interesting year in your line of work, huh?
3: Uh, certainly has been um I mean you know apart from i mean I think Lebanon is probably the one in terms of social unrest, but international investors always i think you know make good good villains <laughs> um, in the in, you know for for evil capitalism and I think you know in in terms of sovereign debt, there was a thing in the uh, in the New York Times recently when a bunch of hedge funds. Tried to stop Puerto Rico from uh, spending money on sort of protecting the population from storm damage so that they could repay in full the debt that the hedge funds had bought in the 40s. So, yeah, it's an interesting place to be. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. um, well, why don't we start with Lebanon? We're going to sort of bounce around uh, from place to place, I-, I think, given that we are talking about emerging and frontier markets. But I'm particularly interested in Lebanon because I remember when I was out in the Middle East, you know, every once in a while, while when you were talking about debt sustainability with an analyst or when a piece of research crossed my desk, it would say something like Lebanon has a public debt to GDP ratio of something like 150%, which is really, really eye-catching and probably worse than the vast majority of even emerging market countries. And yet every analyst, every research note would kind of swat that away as not really relevant for the time being, and yet something has changed this year, and suddenly everyone is very, very worried about Lebanon's situation. What was the catalyst for the current
3: crisis? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's hard, it's hard to put your finger on. Um, I think uh, uh, once the government really realized that push was coming to shove, I mean, like you say, Lebanon's ratios have been absolutely horrific. We usually look at, for example, a current account deficit or a budget deficit of 6%, 7% of GDP. As being unsustainable. Lebanon's current account deficit is around 25% of GDP. I mean, most of these ratios are completely off the charts. The, the reason why I think people have kind of said, oh, well, Lebanon's different is they've been in the wrong place for a long time. I mean, I, as, as Joe kindly noted, I've been doing this job for a long time. And even in the late 90s, when I started out doing this, Lebanon was already running some very peculiar numbers. But What's happening, I think, with with rising rates, I mean, Lebanon is the one country. I mean, Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme are terms which get thrown around a lot you know, and and often very unfairly. But I think Lebanon is one country where that accusation really begins to stick because what happens is that Lebanese, either non-residents or sort of non-residents claiming to be residents or, you know, that there's not, a, you know, huge uh, transparency where the money comes from, bring their money into Lebanon and, and, you know, and instead of running, you know, sort of yield getting, say, 1%, 1.5% on a dollar deposit in uh, a bank anywhere else, you're getting 9 10% on um, dollar deposits in the Lebanese banking system. So people thought that was a great trade. They brought their their money back. Basically, the government spent the money, the central bank used the money to prop up the peg of the the Lebanese pound at a touch over 1,500 to the US dollar. And it was was the classic situation. The currency became uncompetitive, huge trade deficits as, as, as huge amounts were imported. But every year, you know, the country needed not just to finance the current account deficit, but also, you know, very significant redempt- redemptions of, of foreign debt. And what's happened this year is that foreigners stopped being willing to roll over the debt or the Lebanese or whoever it was who was the end user of these debts. So the the banks became absolutely desperate for those foreign dollars. And at that time, the supply of those dollars also dried up. Now, that could be associated with some fairly unpopular kind of austerity measures, including, I think, attacks on WhatsApp conversations. Hmm. You know, it's easy to kind of to point to a 100 different things. But finally, a situation which had always looked unsustainable actually became unsustainable. And you've got some very strange situations happening at the moment. There are no formal capital controls on the Lebanese economy, but there are de facto controls that, you know, that if you want to take a large cash deposit, you'll find that you're restricted to maybe a couple of hundred dollars per day to take out of a bank. It's very difficult to make transfers abroad. That you know that a dollar in a Lebanese bank is absolutely not worth uh, a dollar in any other bank. That although the official rate for the Lebanese pound is in one place, there's a there's a grey market where the the, the lira is. We've heard around thirty percent cheaper. So it, it, it's all the signs that you quite often associate with countries going wrong. You know these the official rate uh, deviating from from the practical rate. Theoretically, you can move money around, in practice, you can't. So, but yeah, I mean what. <laughs> it, it, it's the old thing, you know, what can't go on in the end won't go on. And mm. Lebanon looks to be moving much close to that moment of truth.
0: This dynamic that you mentioned in which Lebanese banks were offering extremely high rates of interest so that uh, foreign holders of dollars would bring their money back into the country. Is that unusual is, or is that something that you see from time to time in uh, countries that have uh, very high demand for uh, hard currency.
3: It's a bit retro, really. Hmm. I mean, it used to be much more common because it, it's something that you typically associate with pegs. So, you know, go back 20 years and nearly every country, I mean, effectively all the countries in Asia, most of Latin America had pegs to the dollars or mixed pegs to the dollar and the yen and the, and the Deutsche Mark as it was then. But, you know, as all the, you know, as peg after peg broke uh, with, I think, Russia in 1998 being the most glaring example of this thing of, of, paying up massively for something linked to a dollar it's really it, it's a very unusual thing to see these days um, there are very few very few pegs left in the world but yeah it's something that we've seen in many places before and it does you know and once you get to that point where x number of Lebanese pounds or a do- or a dollar in Lebanon aren't the same as a dollar offshore that's when things start to spin out of control quite quickly so
2: the implication here, I guess, is that the Lebanese central bank was basically underwriting the country's banks and sort of encouraging them to suck in foreign inflows so that it could maintain yep. the peg. Exactly. So does that mean that uh, banking or a financial crisis is now basically inevitable in Lebanon?
3: Uh, inevitable is a word to use very carefully about <laughs> Lebanon. Uh, it, it's certainly, left to itself, I'd say it's absolutely inevitable. What we find a lot of place, people are placing their hopes on are the Lebanese looking for a sponsor, you know, either the Saudis or the Iranians. Uh, I mean, domestic politics in uh, Lebanon is really is, is really very complicated, but. The various richer uh, energy-exporting states are often seen as maybe a sort of a, a magic a sort of well, I suppose a sovereign sugar daddy, uh, which could be you know, which because these some oh you know, Lebanon is a small country, that seems the only plausible way out. Certainly, the IMF or any of the, uh, the any of the other global lenders would be most unlikely to allow that to go ahead. You know, to, to pump money into the economy without seeing something to uh, address the underlying imbalances.
0: You mentioned the uncompetitiveness of the currency. What is the I mean if in theory when you hear about uh, uncompetitive currencies, you think about okay that choking off some sort of domestic sector, some domestic uh, say export sector, what if in a sort of more properly managed or more flexible currency, what does Lebanon what is uh, the main potential for Lebanon to uh, improve its terms of trade?
3: I mean, I I think it's got great potential as a service center for the Middle East. I mean, Mm -hmm. sort of historically, you know, before the rise of Dubai, uh, Lebanon was, was a big trading center, you know, and trading centers like Hong Kong, everywhere else have gone on to be the financial capital of right. their regions. So I think the civil war and various other things in Lebanon are the reason, you know, why, why that didn't happen there. You know, it's, it's a very attractive tourist destination, very well-educated population. I mean, there are plenty of areas where, where the country could maybe be more competitive. And also there's a very uh, very large diaspora. And in many other countries around the world, just, you know, sort of foreign remittances are enough to keep, to keep an economy going. But, you know, looking at, looking at Lebanon now, and even allowing for the fact that, you know, a substantial recession is pretty much guaranteed in the event of the of, of the peg breaking, a devaluation of something, you know, of effectively, say, halving the value of the currency really doesn't look like much of a stretch here. Wow.
2: So a a devaluation is essentially a a debt restructuring in this context. And I did promise that we were going to talk a little bit about uh, international uh, bankruptcy regimes or the lack thereof, uh, the mechanism by which these actually get resolved. And one of the interesting things about Lebanon is that it has issued debt to international investors. And I think some of those bonds do have collective action clauses in them. So are we going to get a sort of repeat of the, uh, the Elliott Argentina situation here?
3: Look, it's very likely that they're going to try. Uh, I mean, the stuff that's at at risk of the the Elliott Argentina situation is really the older debt, because most collective action clauses, you know, if you get about three quarters of the debtors together, and most of this debt is held by, or a very large proportion of this debt is held by Lebanese banks or Lebanese residents, Mm. especially the older bonds, which don't have these collective action clauses, because what you tend to find is that vulture investors choose one or two specific issues and try and own a blocking stake in those bonds rather than hoovering up sort of odd odd bits of the bonds at a few cents in the dollar i mean at the moment the lebanese debt is generally sort of trading you know high 30s or 40s not really down at the level where distressed investors would find it interesting i mean a lot of the debt that elliot bought in argentina we think was trading you know, sort of 20 cents in the in the dollar or or below but absolutely, it's vulnerable, you know, especially, I mean, if you've got a CAC, it's fine. 75% of the investors agree, and then the remaining 25 have no choice. They're automatically sort of bailed in. But it's the older bonds which don't have these clauses, which I think are particularly vulnerable. And, you know, we've seen it in Greece as well. You know, there, there have been other cases where foreign uh, law bonds are effectively senior and that the investors get, get, pay, get paid in full.
2: Uh, Paul, you mentioned there that even though we've seen a, a pretty dramatic drop in the price of Lebanese debt, it's not yet trading at distress levels. Why is that? Because again, when you look at the actual metrics for the country, it's really, really hard to see how it will get itself out of this situation. So why isn't the debt being valued as such?
3: Uh, it, it's very hard to say. I think there's, you know, the, there's there's a certain residual belief in, you know, sort of the sugar daddy from from the Gulf. The yields are, are sort of high high teens now or, or, or low twenties. It's quite an expensive thing not to be invested in, and a very expensive thing to be short. They have got significant reserves, so you know, there's every chance that even if things do ultimately go wrong, mm. they could certainly postpone default for for a year or more. And I think it's the combination of those uncertainties. But certainly, you know, given these prices, I'd rather be a seller than a buyer of Lebanese debt.
0: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of principal global investors, LLC. I have a weird question, and it's <laughs> it's gonna be kind of a curveball, and it's something that I wonder about from time to time, but it's just something on my mind just now. You know, every once in a while you get you read about some country that's in some sort of extreme distress, the running out of money. the banking system is running out of dollars. We were talking about that with Turkey a couple of years ago. Things quieted down. Why is it so rare for countries to just completely collapse a la Venezuela? Like we all know and have Venezuela in our head is just a country in which everything is gone. But that's pretty rare in the grand scheme of things. And so, you know, you might get some extreme uh, recessions from time to time, but you rarely get all-out economic Armageddon, even when the math looks horrible.
3: <laughs> I can only agree. Uh, I mean, you get degrees. I mean, Argentina in two thousand and one right. was another thing. You know, where where you know there were fears of people going hungry. Right. Uh, fortunately, the country is a huge food exporter, so they had surplus food. I think in Iceland, we came very close to the edge. There, they were lucky in that you know they have ample power you sort of hydro and and fish and and geothermal, but yeah, no no, countries, countries in the wrong place where things go absolutely wrong. I mean, Venezuela, it took years of work. It took over a decade Yeah. First, first Chavez and then uh, Maduro until you got the country completely reliant on the oil price being kind of north of $100. So once it dropped much below there, the situation was completely unsustainable. I mean, these countries are very unpleasant places to be, uh, you know, and very, very unpleasant places to be poor. I mean, even though Turkey's gone quiet, there's a lot of people living very miserable lives. But I think, you know, just the political pushback that once a country gets gets right close to the edge, you do need uh, effectively... Effectively a secret police, which is what you've got in Venezuela, to prevent the government hmm. being overthrown and replaced by something more rational. So I think politics is is probably the only answer I can really come up with there.
2: Uh, so Paul, uh, we've done Lebanon and a little bit of Venezuela, but of course the other country we wanted to ask you about is, of course, Argentina, uh, which is in the midst of. Um, it, it seems like they're talking about yet another debt restructuring what's the most likely outcome there and i guess my biggest biggest question for the argentina situation is why do international investors continue to buy argentinian <laughs> debt even though it's defaulted uh several times
3: uh, i think the greater fool theory that you know a lot of International debt investors. I mean, the vast majority of uh, international debt investors. The key question is, you know, will this be more expensive, or will I make money over the next month, regardless of whether this is sustainable in the long term? I mean, if you look at the Argentine Century Bond, which, you know, even that, people who bought it at issue, if they if they were fairly nimble, managed to manage to make a little money at least. I think that you're just not paid to punish a country for past sins. I mean. Absolutely. I think sovereign debt investors are chronically optimistic. Um, you know, last time around in Argentina, they borrowed an absolutely phenomenal amount of money and sort of drove Argentina's ratios up the wall. But I think just the, the incentive horizon for your average debt investor is a lot shorter than it takes a country to go bust.
0: So, Paul, we've seen this return of trouble in Argentina. Obviously, you mentioned Lebanon. We're also seeing it elsewhere in South America right now, similar issues. You see uh, issues in Chile, Colombia, and elsewhere. And I'm curious, so in the developed world, and we've been talking a lot about it on this podcast lately, in fact, in the developed world, there's no doubt that there is a lot of debating and rethinking sort of conventional macro wisdom and this idea about how best to stabilize the economy, the role of monetary policy versus fiscal policy and so forth. The sluggish growth post-crisis has caused a uh, sort of rethink. Are we due for something like that when in the developed world? Because you see these sort of tried and true efforts, the IMF comes in, it has some package, It fails inevitably or it fails frequently because the terms of the package run up against domestic politics or you see some country in vain uh, trying to hold on to some peg and this idea that I'm not sure what is EM macro stability in need of a broader rethink.
3: Uh, That's a very good question. Uh, You know, I don't have a good answer. I mean, clearly political tolerance is being stretched, you know, by this long period, I think, especially in the Anglo-Saxon economies. We haven't seen wages rising. We've seen massive inequality. It's, you know, it's it's worked very well for the wealthy. It's worked much less for everybody else. And, uh, you know, and clearly the cracks are beginning to show, you know, things like Brexit in particular, which is a hobby horse of mine.
0: Oh, I haven't noticed that.
3: The triumph of populism, I think, owes a lot to that. I think, you know, the big question for the Western countries is, you know, is what's the impact of the next recession where, you know, instead of people sort of seeing, you know, all the wealth uh, accreting to a few people are suddenly sort of struggling to meet their mortgage payments and stuff like that. I think that's when, you know, some very serious questions are going to be asked about, you know, whether you can have Uh, and and this is the question, you know, whether you can have political stability when the economy isn't working for the majority of people. I mean, this was, I think Chile is the best example of that, you know, because it is the one which is most purely economic, is that the Chilean economy at a macro level has been doing very, very well, certainly better than almost any other economy in South America over that period. But the gains have overwhelmingly accrued to a few people. And I think, yes, I, I think, there are definitely questions, DM and EM, about how long that's sustainable for. And I think a period of macro stress, you know, is going to make those questions much more glaring. But the, the difference is, and, you know, I think this is why in Chile, you get a lot of demonstrations, which I think may, may, may eventually quieten down. Unlike Argentina, unlike Lebanon, you know, unlike Venezuela countries with with monetary sovereignty can hang on a lot longer, you know, that they can print the money without completely debasing their currencies. You know, and all the countries that we're talking about are really countries which which don't conform to, I'm not a huge believer in MMT, but the idea is that it only applies to monetary sovereigns. And, you know, none of those countries are by anybody's definition monetary sovereign. So I think monetary sovereigns can probably hold out a lot longer.
2: Uh, Paul, Joe, uh, very diplomatically said you were uh, an experienced emerging market investor uh, in our intro. <laughs> so I'm just curious, yep. is there is there anything about this year or the past year, 2019, that has actually surprised you in your emerging market experience, something that you weren't expecting?
3: The thing is that we've we've got this far without more serious problems in other places. You know yeah. that that you know that we've had a long period of stability, and I think the same with everybody else. You know, it's been the longest period since God knows when without a recession. That kind of Lebanon and Argentina, they're very significant for the people who are there, but in the context of global markets, they're tiny. You know, sort of you know, and even the, as debt markets, they're much smaller than Brazil or Russia or Turkey. So I think the fact that you know that it's all been in very small, marginal con- countries, you know, or countries with very specific problems like Venezuela has been the surprise. I think, you know, the fact that Turkey was able to pull itself back from the brink very quickly, that Brazil has been able to cut interest rates, you know, to an unprecedented degree. Markets are really pretty relaxed. And, I'm, you know, I, 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 that's what I think we've been struggling with a bit.
0: You know, uh, you mentioned uh, when we were talking about Lebanon, and of course, it absolutely applies to Argentina and the whole saga with uh, Paul Singer. How important is having good legal expertise to investing in these markets to understand exactly what you're buying?
3: Uh, I mean, it, it helps. I mean, I think, you know, most people in my position would know how to how to read a or not how to read, but, would, you know, would have an, a grasp of some of the concepts. And, mm-hmm. you know, and if we didn't, we've been educated by over the last few years. I th- you know, I think a, a number I'd throw out there is that, you know, having been sued for 10 years by Elliot, that, that singer's uh, vulture fund. The, the Argentine government actually ended up paying his legal fees, which were, as if I remember right, about 235 million dollars. So yes, good legal advice is worth an, is mm. worth an awful lot. I mean, just just as a note, I think Singer bought debt with a face value of of around 400 million dollars. They paid less than 20 cents on the dollar, and they 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 took back. We think sort of over two billion dollars was was what Argentina wow. ultimately ended up paying them. So yeah. Getting your legal advice straight is really worth quite a lot.
0: (laughs) Paul, one last thing. I remember, you know, I think the last time we had you on, I think we were discussing uh, the crisis in Turkey and your timing – about when that would turn. I mean, you just mentioned they brought themselves back from the brink. It was very good. And I want to just sort of go back to this idea that for people who aren't in the weeds on this stuff but who are interested, what are the things that you look for specifically that say even though the headlines may look awful in a country, this the some sort of corner has been turned such that they can return to some sort of stability or sustainability?
3: The awkward truth is that, you know, for a balance of payments crisis specifically, a big recession, and to be honest, a recognition that the recession is inevitable, is is usually what fixes these things because you you fix a big external deficit by imports collapsing, not by growing exports. I mean, people love to say restoring competitiveness, but it's it's not. It's just people not having the money to buy imported goods. Usually sort of 80% plus of the improvement comes from a collapse in imports, which means a domestic recession. So once we see, you know, things beginning to adjust, a big drop in property prices, we see activity slowing down, we see interest rates going up, you know, that this recognition that you know, that, that that there is a reckoning is usually a sign that, that that at least the problem is being addressed and that the worst will soon be over.
0: As a corollary to that, is it a warning sign of who might be the next in the line of crisis if uh, economic expansion is associated with a dramatic widening of the uh, trade deficit?
3: Exactly that. Uh, that. That combination of very high domestic credit growth and a big external deficit, uh, that's definitely something that we look for as a country where things are going wrong.
0: Paul McNamara, uh, great to get your perspective, and uh, we'll have you again on in another year to talk about uh, <laughs> all the uh, the new crises that will inevitably pop up in 2020.
2: The latest emerging market crisis. Yeah,
0: there's, always, there's going to be something new, so looking forward to get your perspective. Thanks, Paul.
3: Okay, Bye. thanks very much, folks.
2: Thanks, Paul. So, Joe, I always love talking to Paul, uh, partly because he brings, you know, decades of experience uh, to any discussion of emerging markets. But I think... Decades. Um, But I think it's also really important to get like the actual investor side of things to explain some of the dynamics. So his point about how investors aren't actually paid to punish a country for past mistakes and that it's actually very expensive to avoid investing in some of these markets, I think, is a really important one.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, because it's easy enough to look at a country like Argentina and say, oh, how many, I don't know how many dozens of times they've defaulted over the uh, last century or whatever. But, you know, this idea that maybe investors aren't all complete idiots and still have uh, reasons to invest in a country, uh, despite that track record, I think is, uh, makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. And the other thing, a lot of this reminded me of, well, A, I think your question about whether or not there needs to be a new paradigm for emerging markets is, is a good one. And it, Definitely brought a lot of flashbacks from my like international political economy classes in university, but B, uh, the notion of you know large parts of the world actually being tied very closely uh, to the U.S. dollar and thereby yeah. the Federal Reserve. So you know, Paul mentioned at the very beginning that part of what sparked Lebanon's crisis was just the rise in interest rates in the U.S., which kind of caused its. It problems yeah. because it, of course, has a pegged currency.
0: Well, exactly right. You remember we had our episode with Al Fadel kaboob and um, mm. Paul was saying you're not really a big fan of MMT. That's fine. Nonetheless, this idea that the sort of paradigm via which we think emerging markets must grow, which is export competitiveness, uh, currency stability, and so forth— You know, it continues to get tested. And this idea that, you know, we do, I do think we have this macro rethink uh, in the West, uh, a recent episode uh, where we talked with uh, Robert Skidelsky was very much about that. It does feel that, you know, you look at these situations like, again, Argentina and however much the IMF sunk into that program, and you wonder whether a much deeper discussion needs to be had about how macro stability in emerging markets.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is, I think there have been some noises coming out of the IMF and certain policymakers in Washington about rethinking uh, some of these programs and some of the approaches to debt sustainability. So interesting stuff going on.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff, interesting times. Great to talk to Paul.
2: Yes, indeed. All right. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest, Paul McNamara. He's on Twitter at M underscore Paul McNamara. I think many people agree, one of the most interesting and insightful people around on the space. And... Be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson, as well as this week's substitute producer, Topher Forges. He's at Forges T. Be sure to follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of Bloomberg's podcasts. There's so many good ones under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.